The text for this afternoon is God's holy word, as we find it summarized and confessed in Lord's Day 22 of the Heidelberg Catechism. So let's now turn to what we confess God's word concerning the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting, as we confess it in Lord's Day 22. What comfort does the resurrection of the body offer you? Not only shall my soul after this life immediately be taken up to Christ my head, but also this my flesh, raised by the power of Christ, shall be reunited with my soul and made like Christ's glorious body. What comfort do you receive from the article about the life everlasting? Since I now already feel in my heart the beginning of eternal joy, I shall, after this life, possess perfect blessedness, such as no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man conceived, a blessedness in which to praise God forever. Brothers and sisters of our Lord Jesus Christ, when Jesus Christ returns, the scriptures teach us that God in Christ is going to purge this present world. He's going to cleanse it with fire. And having cleansed it from all filth and sin, Jesus is going to commence with an everlasting kingdom of grace. I trust that all of us here today are going to be part of that glorious day. Indeed, the very thought of union with Jesus Christ, the prospect of entering into the eternal kingdom with him, fills us with joy and expectation. And it's all very exciting because so much in this present life is very difficult. That is also behind the instruction of the Apostle Paul when he writes his letter to the Thessalonians. The believers there in Thessalonica, the Christians, were being persecuted. They were suffering greatly for their Christian faith under an unbelieving government, against unbelieving neighbors, and they are waiting eagerly for the deliverance from this broken and sinful world. And Paul writes this letter in order to encourage them not to give up, but to stay busy, to be ready for when Christ returns. And to add to that, the suffering that those Christians are experiencing, there is this other concern that their very friends, their relatives and loved ones, some of them are dying. And they're leaving holes in their lives that are bringing grief and pain, leading to many questions about their deaths. Why did that have to happen? And what happens now to the souls after death? How aware of everything are our loved ones? 
Will they now participate when Jesus Christ returns? Or will they miss out? Well, beloved, death has a way of doing that to us. Death, we feel, has no regard for our desires and our ideals and our plans. And so rather than celebration and festal garments and bridal veils culminating with a union with Christ in the air, the Thessalonians are rather enduring funerals and wearing black garments and observing open graves. Rather than hearing the great trumpet blast, what they are hearing more are the sounds of crying and wailing, of tears and lamentation. And so Paul assures the Thessalonians about the glory and the restoration of loved ones who have died. He comforts them with the news that Jesus Christ is victorious over death. And so tells them about the greatest gift of all, that God gave his Son so that we might have life. And that we might have that life abundantly. And not only is this instruction for the Thessalonians, it's instruction for all Christians throughout Christian church history. God, through his word, comforts those who mourn. Who mourn the loss of loved ones. And God then gives hope concerning the future. So this afternoon we hear God's word proclaimed under this theme. The church is comforted in Christ's complete victory over death. We'll see that the church is comforted in the hour of death. At the side of the grave. And finally, in the misery of life. So that's how we summarize the message this afternoon. The church is comforted in Christ's complete victory over death. The church is comforted first in the hour of death, second at the side of the grave, and third in the misery of life. Well, brothers and sisters, from all appearances, the death of a believer, the death of our loved one, looks very much like the death of an unbeliever. In both deaths, it is clearly seen that the life, the soul of that person has left the body. That all that is left is an outer shell. And to add to that, both bodies will return to the dust from where they came. Looks very much the same. And yet, the Bible, God's Word, and, and our catechism is echoing that. It teaches us that there is, in fact, a substantial difference. Our catechism says, our soul shall, that is the souls of believers, shall after this life immediately be taken up to Christ my head. So that's the significant difference. The soul of the believer goes to heaven, goes to be with the Lord, and experiences a glorious presence of the Lord, whereas the soul of the unbeliever 
goes to hell. This afternoon we heard the words of John 3. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his own son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So also here in the words of John, in the words of the Lord Jesus, that significant difference is being expressed. This afternoon we'll focus a little bit on what happens to the soul of the believer upon death that goes to be in the presence of Jesus Christ. This is exactly what Jesus said to the criminal on the cross beside him. I tell you the truth. Today you will be with me in paradise. After that criminal's death, the one that repented and confessed the name of Jesus, after he died, his soul went to enjoy the blessings of eternal paradise. That's something that's also taught in Luke 16. In the parable of the poor man named Lazarus and the rich man who both die. When the beggar died... When Lazarus died, it says there in Luke 16 that the angels carried him to Abraham's side. It's also translated in other versions as Abraham's breast or Abraham's bosom. And that's a, an expression that describes comfort and joy for the soul. On earth, the poor man in his physical body was full of sores. It says there in Luke 16 that even the dogs came and licked those sores. So great was his suffering. And yet when he died, he went to heaven. His soul was there and all his sufferings, all the experiences of his pain were gone. And he only knew peace and joy. That couldn't be said of the other man, the rich man. For he, and the expression there, is that he experienced eternal thirst. The Apostle Paul describes that too in Philippians 1. He talks about this present life, even for the Christian, as life meant Christ, but death meant gain. He says that a little in Philippians 1. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Finally, in 2 Corinthians 5, in verse 8, Paul says this. We are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So there the expression is, the expression of heaven and heavenly joy and peace is that we, our souls are at home with the Lord. Beloved, in the death of the believer, 
The soul departs from the broken body, and so the soul no longer knows that brokenness anymore. The soul receives a preliminary salvation or judgment while the body decomposes in the grave. The soul goes to be with Christ and enjoys the greatest blessing and knowledge yet. The soul, already in this life joined to Christ, now continues to share in Christ but even more fully than on earth, for the weight of sin is all removed. The body of sin, the broken body, has fallen away. So it is stated in Revelation 14, verse 13, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed. Those who die in the Lord enjoy blessings. They enjoy the presence of God without the blemish of sin. There is a translation of the soul from earth to heaven, and it's immediate. Paul writes about that in our passage. He talks about how in the twinkling of an eye, when when the eyes are closed, immediately there on earth, when there's death, The soul, as it were, reopens and sees glory. How different that is with the death of an unbeliever, the soul of which is taken to hell to suffer torment and anguish that is deserved because of sin. And of course we consider all this in the light of another teaching that after Death, the soul, sleeps. Maybe you've heard of this idea that the soul sleeps after death and is not aware of anything until the day of the great resurrection. That's a thinking that actually arose already early in the church, the Christian church, on account of a number of Bible passages that describe death as sleep. And our reading passage is one of those. In the latter part of this passage, beginning at verse 13, Paul speaks of death three times as sleep, as falling asleep. Well, why does he do that? Is he, in fact, referring to the soul here? That the soul sleeps? That the soul, after death, is in a comatose state? Or a state of unconsciousness? Until after Christ returns? Is that what he's saying? No, Paul's point is not to state that after people die, their souls are unaware of anything until the world ends. He is not, in fact, speaking of the soul here. He is speaking about the body, the state of the dead body. What this means is Paul is speaking euphemistically. He is using a euphemism. And what that means is he is stating something in words to make what is and appears horrible or bad to be something better. So what he's doing is he's putting a positive spin 
on physical death. When he says that the death of the body is like sleep, that the body is sleeping, what he means, first of all, is that there is a relief from pain and sorrow of this life. Imagine a, a child who is sick, who is in bed, has a fever, is in, in pain. How the parents pray for the child to fall asleep because sleep brings great relief. It's a time of relief when there is sleep. But secondly, Paul also uses this expression to refer to the temporary nature of death. Just like a, that child falls asleep, so there is also an end to that sleep. Sleep is temporary, by definition. And what he means to say is, our physical death, the death of our body, is not a lasting thing. It is going to end. Just as one goes to sleep and rises up again, so a body of our loved one who has died is going to rise up again on the last day. Sleep, which has all the appearances of death, is not the end, is what Paul's saying. This is how John Calvin puts it in his commentary on this verse. This sleep refers not to the soul, but to the body. For the dead body lies in a tomb as in a couch until God raises up the man. Believers who die in the very hour of their death, their soul goes to be with the Lord. That's our comfort this afternoon, first of all. And the basis for it, beloved, is that Jesus Christ himself has died in the full sense of the word. In verse 14 of our reading today, it says... For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Christ, in other words, suffered hellish agony and eternal death that we might nevermore be put to shame. Jesus Christ experienced the total absence of the Father, so when we die... We can go to be with him. It's a beautiful comfort for all of us who have seen the death of a loved one who believed. For all of us with that faith, we can say it today. For them, it is better. For they are with Christ. They are with Christ in a way that is better than we are. Indeed, this Christian hope... It doesn't take away our mourning altogether. It doesn't make that empty spot any less. But it sure softens our grief and strengthens us in our sorrows. Although there is destruction in death to some extent, there isn't total destruction. For the soul is alive and is in heaven with the Lord. So we are comforted. 
in the presence of death. Now from our reading passage, we also learn that there is further basis and comfort and reason for hope. And that's in our second point. The church is comforted at the side of the grave. So we've seen already that death of the body is like falling asleep because one day those physical bodies are going to rise again. They're going to come back to life. As a person who sleeps rises in the morning, as a baby wakes from nap, so the bodies of believers will rise up to new life at the dawn of a new day when Jesus Christ returns. Despite the destruction of the flesh, that destruction is going to be reversed. The souls of believers, their bodies that have fallen asleep, will be reunited with their former bodies, but now they will be glorified. They shall enjoy a different life than when they went to sleep, because in the new body they will be refreshed and renewed like Christ's glorious body. This is truly comforting for all of us who have seen loved ones die. No matter how peaceful the death may have been, no matter how relieving that was for the one who was suffering, death remains an enemy of life and of what God has created. Death is the destruction of human life. It is the result of sin. And therefore, it would seem that death has the final say. In the end, we, we seem to experience loss and defeat and the grim reaper is a thief. Things can be going perfectly well, and then all of a sudden death comes along and snatches someone's life away. We are inclined, then, it's our natural tendency to focus on this loss. To, to gaze down and settle our eyes upon the casket to look down into the deep grave. That our eyes linger there on the earth, on the mound, and to think about the body that will decay. But our catechism and our reading are teaching us not to do that, not to look down, but to look up, to look up continually. For there, in the sky, Jesus Christ is going to come down again. And he's going to gather us to himself. And not only us, not only we who remain, but also all those who have fallen asleep before us. In the twinkling of an eye, those who are still alive will be changed, and those who have died, who have fallen asleep in the Lord, will be raised up imperishable. Our catechism puts it this way, also this, my flesh, raised by the power of Christ, will be reunited with my soul 
and made like Christ's glorious body. So the Apostle Paul is comforting the Thessalonians and us when he says that at the trumpet blast, the dead in Christ will rise first. He comforts the believers who have seen their loved ones pass on from this life. We are told, when Jesus Christ returns, we will meet our loved ones with their former bodies because Christ will reunite the souls with the former bodies in perfect form. Beloved, when we stand at the graveside, it is not the last time we will see the body of our believing loved one. And not only that, we will see something better. We will see a body that has fallen asleep and then become alive and awake and full of life. The same people, the same bodies, yet perfected without sin and blemish and defect, we will see our brother and our sister, our child, our mother and our father, our grandparents, our husband and our wife. And if Jesus Christ returns before we die, we will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet them with the Lord in the air. You know what that means? That means the cemetery is going to be something that is far different than we often consider a cemetery. In fact, we often associate the cemetery with death, with bones, with, with a place where there is no life. And, and thus it sometimes becomes a place that we don't go very often. Did you know that the word cemetery is actually the same Greek word that we are reading in our passage this afternoon? The word for falling asleep? In other words, the word cemetery in English means sleeping place. There, Jesus Christ will go to wake up everyone from death. Though we shall hear the cries of fear and the anguish of those who did not accept Jesus Christ, we will also hear the shouts and the songs of joy from believers of those who belong to him. There will at the cemetery be joy because the day of resurrection will be the beginning of everlasting life. And so we come to our third point. The church is comforted in the misery of life. It's an interesting thing to consider that the Bible doesn't say much about what eternal life is going to be like. Let's say, from the Bible, we don't know a lot about eternal life. And our catechism is reflecting that, that fact and truth. Because the catechism, following scripture, describes eternal life 
in relation to and, and in perspective to what we know today. You could, you could even say that the catechism is describing eternal life what it is not going to be. I shall after this life possess perfect blessedness such as no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man conceived, a blessedness in which to praise God forever. Eternal life is, is going to be far better than anything we know today of joy and blessedness. And so, if today we already enjoy many of God's good gifts through the saving power of Jesus Christ, then in everlasting life, it will be far greater than that. Our passage says uh, something about eternal life as well. In verse 17, we read, Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so, and here it is, we will always be with the Lord. We will always be with the Lord. That too is veiled language. Because the human sinful eye is unable to see and comprehend perfect bliss. But in a very simple and yet meaningful way, the apostle is describing what everlasting life is going to be like. That is, the central thought of eternal life is this. It's the restoration of creation. It is the restoration of what was experienced in the Garden of Eden. It is the moment where man and God are together. Whereas sin drove us away from God and separated us from God and meant that we could not be with God, in Jesus Christ, already now in, in beginning, but in eternal life, in fullness, we once again will be with God. Today, we can already experience the beginning of communion with God through faith, only in part, but then, when Christ returns, it will be a perfect and full communion. And how do we know being with the Lord in everlasting life is going to be perfect bliss? Because we already know today in faith what that being with the Lord is to some degree. And that already we experience the joy of it. It is already today a joy to live for God and to commune with Him and to do His will. Well, how much more when we have perfect bodies? Can we and will we do God's will wholly and perfectly from the heart and that we experience a blessedness in which to praise God forever? What comfort does the resurrection of the body offer you? What comfort do you receive from the article about the life everlasting? Those are the questions we have focused on this afternoon. In conclusion, we can say this. Jesus Christ coming into the world, suffering, 
obeying, dying, being buried, but also rising and ascending into heaven and returning grants us the greatest gift of all, true life and life forevermore. So the Thessalonians, so we need not wonder about the death of our loved ones who are believers. We can indeed confess that they today are better off. Their souls are with Christ. Neither will they miss out on Christ's return, for their bodies are merely asleep, and when Christ returns, their bodies will be aroused to life again. Their souls will be reunited to their bodies, and together we will be with the Lord forever. And so, today, we soldier on as before. We live quietly. We mind our own affairs. We work with our hands as before. And we do not lose hope. But we have hope that Christ will come again to restore all things. And we look skyward from where Christ and our believing loved ones will appear. Where we will all be one day in perfection when we believe in him. Amen. Let us now sing together from hymn 70, Day of Judgment, Day of Wonders, Hark the trumpet's awesome sound, Louder than a thousand thunders, Shakes the vast creation round. How the summons will the sinner's heart confound. We'll sing hymn 70 all stanzas. Let's stand to sing. 